Well, good morning, everyone. I am not Peter Davidson. I am uh, less holy, less wise, but better looking. And a lot younger. And a lot younger. You can tell him I said that. Um, it is a. <laughs> yeah, I was standing in front of those speakers, and my microphone was starting to yell at me. So um, I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of the speakers. So I'm gonna. I'm going to do this number and stand way back here. Um, so hopefully we that hopefully that's fine. Let me st- start us off in prayer, and uh, we will jump right in. We have a lot to cover, and uh, I think Peter said two hours to cover it in. So um, right, is that what? It, no, oh man. All right, let's pray, and we'll. St- Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You're faithful. You are wise. You are sovereign over us. Yet your mercy reigns on us new every morning, God. Your word is truth. Your spirit leads us to your truth, Father. So as we speak and teach and listen to your truth, I pray, Lord, that our minds and our hearts be changed. Father, that obedience would be the robe that we leave dressed with this morning, O God. That you would give us the strength, O Lord, to follow your words and to enjoy following them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. I hope you picked um, a, a little booklet or a little handout outside. Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 48. Uh, Pastor Peter's been taking us through the book of Matthew and um, just been doing a fantastic job of it. I've been blessed by his teaching. Uh, and just to kind of give you a, a, a uh, just a quick review of what has been said so long, just a one-sentence review of kind of what he has done. He's divided the book of Matthew into several sections uh, each of these sections uh, representing a, a main idea that the gospel writer is trying to accomplish. So the first section, first chapter of the book of Matthew, um, speaks about the announcement of God's Messiah. We have the, the birth narratives of Christ, um, uh, passages concerning the fulfilling of the prophecies with the birth of Christ. Uh, the second uh, section that we've covered so far has been the presentation of God's Messiah as Jesus is introduced to the scene in His ministry begins. The third section, the confrontation of God's Messiah, but what we've started with last couple of weeks uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, the introduction to the Beatitudes, and what we're looking at today is the proclamation of God's Messiah. Uh, So God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, has been um, kind of the overarching theme so far of the book and of the lessons that we've covered. And um, as is the case with every earthly kingdom, uh, as is the case with every government, there are a set of rules that characterize uh, the nature of every government, the nature of every kingdom. Uh, You look at the Old Testament example uh, of the people of Israel. Uh, This is a theocracy. This is a group of people that lived under the direct rule of a, uh, in this case, of God. God as their king, and as their king, God set forth a, a list of rules, of, of, of laws to keep, uh, reflecting his character, reflecting his nature. And um, um, what we look at today is the intent and the application of that law. If God is the same, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, what are we to do then with the Old Testament law? 
how does the Old Testament law apply to us? But more specifically, and this is, uh, um, this is some of the wisdom that pa- Pastor Peter, uh, speaking to him about this lesson, he wanted us to focus on the intent behind the law. A good analogy I can give you of this is, I am in the child-rearing stage uh, of my life. I have three kids, I have a six-year-old Adelaide, I have a three-year-old Eliza Jane, and Lucas will be one, my son, next month. So, my kids are very, very uh, young, um, but even in their very, very young uh, years, uh, it is clear, uh, I've never understood the doctrine of the depravity of man better than I have the past six years. I, I've just understood human wickedness and, and evil intentions and just all that kind of good stuff, watching my kids play. And um, something that happens quite regularly at my house is one of my kids, let's say uh, the middle one, Eliza Jane, will go over to um, all these shelves we have in their room and they'll... And she'll pick up a toy, a toy that doesn't belong to her, quote-unquote, a toy that is her older sister's toy. And that toy has been there for weeks, maybe months. It's gone unused. Adelaide, my oldest one, maybe forgot about it. She hasn't used it. But what do you suppose happens the moment that she sees her little sister grab her toy? That's exactly right. It is a gladiator match. Give me my toy. Give me my toy. And this struggle ensues. The little one who's getting bigger it can now put up a fight. So screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And uh, daddy comes in. And um, what do you suppose I want the outcome to be? Do you think that I am primarily concerned with the toys changing hands? Adelaide, let Eliza play with this toy. And then when Adelaide hands back the toy to Eliza and she does this number, um, how do you think that makes me feel? I don't feel like I've accomplished anything. There is a law in my house. And the law in my house is, your toys belong to me. And I want you to share your toys. But sharing is not just the idea of exchanging hands. You giving your sister your toy begrudgingly accomplishes nothing. What am I after? I'm after the heart condition. I want to teach my daughter the value of giving. Of pursuing the joy of another. So... If my daughter gives that toy over to my younger daughter, begrudgingly, nothing has happened. But if my daughter obeys my law of sharing, but does it with a good heart, that's what's won the day. Something good has happened. So, that's a very simple analogy, but what we're looking at today, that analogy can help clear a lot of what we're going to speak about today. We're talking about the intent and the application of the law. So, we begin with verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Having explained the significance of the law, Jesus here begins to tell his disciples that their righteousness, in other words, their keeping of the law, must exceed the supposed righteousness of the Pharisees. And you know, if you were, if you were a, a, an average Jew on the street in the first century, th- this would have been a shocking thing for Jesus to say and a shocking thing for Jesus to hear. We, we, on this side of the cross, on this side of the New Testament, our, our understanding of the Pharisees, we knew their heart. We know them now because the Word has taught us what their heart was all about. But the Pharisees made obedience to God's law, their obsession. They were maybe inwardly wicked, but it is not as if they had not, no zeal for obeying the Word of God. Um, they had calculated 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. So I have studied theology and music. I have not studied math. I'll let you do the arithmetic there. But that's a lot. Okay? And they tried to keep them all. 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions. They lived their lives attempting to keep all of these laws. If you are like me, the Ten Commandments are hard to fulfill. Can you imagine over 600 something laws to keep? And do you notice what Jesus is saying here? Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus Is he expecting his followers to be more righteous than the Pharisees? The answer is yes. How can Jesus' followers be more righteous than the Pharisees? Think about that. How many of of God's laws have you broken this week? I won't ask you to raise raise your hand, but but just think through your week. How many things have you done that you shouldn't have, and how many things have you not done that you should? What is the solution? How do we deal with this? By the way, I'm spending a significant amount of time on this verse because it's a pretty alarming statement for Jesus to say. I think it'll help us unpack this, but how do we solve this? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus within his answer is giving us the answer. In other words, the righteousness that the Pharisees possess will not grant them nor you entrance into the kingdom of God. So their righteousness is not the key. Do you see that? Doing what they do, doing what they do, how they do it is not the key to enter heaven. You'll recall at the beginning of chapter 5 of the book of, Ma- of, of the um, uh, Beatitudes, of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first Beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This means it's not what we have that gets us into heaven. It's not what we have that gets us to God. It's what we receive. To be poor in spirit means to recognize 
utter uh, um, uh, lack of anything spiritual of worth. There is nothing we have, nothing we, we're poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer. So a righteousness that is foreign to us, as Romans 1 tells us, is given to us, then that becomes the key to enter heaven. So, uh, something else that we, we, we need to look at, if you look at this passage, Matthew chapter 5, that we're, we're looking at today, you might have read this uh, several times, but it's broken into different sections. There's a section on anger, a section on lust, a section on divorce, a section on oaths, a section on retaliations, a section on loving your enemies. We'll try and cover all of that today, but I really want to undergird all that with these two uh, thoughts, because um, that will help clear a lot of the questions you might have. But something else that we need to mention about these sections from verses 21 through 48 is that Jesus is not changing the law. I'll say that again. Jesus is not changing the Old Testament law, nor is He going against it. I want to be very, very clear. Now, why would I say that? Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old... Verse 22, but I say to you. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said. Verse 28, but I say to you. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, etc., etc., etc. Do you see that pattern? So, if we read this section superficially, we can come across with the impression that Jesus is lifting up an Old Testament law and then knocking it down. And saying, Moses taught you this, he was wrong, I'll teach you this. That is not what is happening. We'll unpack that uh, more. Now, how do I know that? Well, for one, if you look at verse 17 with Pastor Peter taught on last week... Um, Jesus himself, four, three verses before, said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The second reason um, I think this is the case is that the basic contrast in these verses is not only between the things that are said, but between the people that say them. So the contrast is not primarily between what is said as it is about who is saying it. So we have an, we, we, we have a, an authority fight. Jesus is raising himself up as the authoritative interpreter of the law. That's the point that he is trying to fulfill. Jesus contrasts what has been said by others with what He says. So the issue here is authority. And then the third thing to consider with this section, and this is really, really important, some of the things that Jesus contrasts in this section are actually not direct commands from the Old Testament. I'll show you one. Look at verse 43. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Stop right there. We find that exact command in the Old Testament law. But look at the tail end of that command. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You will not find that anywhere 
in the Old Testament commands. So why is it there? Interpretation. The authority of these Pharisees, of these scribes over the years, as they looked into the Mosaic Law and began to interpret it, revealing their hearts. This is kind of the whole point of this lesson. They come up with this system of 600 and something laws, all the while missing the very point of the laws they're trying to interpret. And, additionally, adding. Adding to things that were not there. So, um, some of what we have in, the, in this contrast that Jesus is doing, he's contrasting things that sound like Old Testament law, that, that, that are surrounded by Old Testament law, but some of it has been ignored and there's been actually some additions. But the point, that, the, the point of this first section is that Jesus is demanding the righteousness that the law truly points to. So his statement, his statement for all of us, that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes is true. If we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, we are to be what? Kind of righteous, very righteous, or perfectly righteous? Perfectly righteous. That's greater than the Pharisaical righteousness. That's greater than the scribal Righteousness. And it's impossible. Oh my. What do we do with that? Well hopefully I can bring some answer to that. But Jesus' teaching and his interpretation of the Old Testament transcends the literal demands of the law. He surpassed the law by insisting that his followers should not only avoid sinful actions, but avoid the sinful attitudes that manifest themselves as sinful actions. I'll say that again. Jesus surpassed the teaching of the law by insisting that his followers should not only avoid sinful actions, do not kill, do not, do not murder, do not lie, do not steal... Don't avoid just that, but also avoid the sinful attitudes that manifest themselves as these law-breaking actions. In other words, not doing something bad is not good enough. Do, do, do you get that? Not doing something bad is not good enough. At the heart of Jesus' teaching in this passage is the teaching that only those with pure hearts will enter the kingdom of God. Again, we go back to the Beatitudes. There's a reason why Jesus begins this beautiful sermon with these Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you were with me on Friday, you heard a teaching on that. The primary contrast Jesus is trying to make is that in the law of Moses, in the time of Moses, you have written on tablets of stone a set of rules to deal with outward behavior. But now, in Jesus' time, by His new law, by His new covenant that He will make official with His blood, the fulfillment of a prophecy of the Old Testament will take place. And this is the prophecy. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. So, this internal condition, God's spirit that has been placed in us will cause this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, Ezekiel 37, which I just read, points to a time when there will be a transformation in our hearts. The law of God begins to be, is literally written on our hearts. Now, through Christ, through His righteousness, His law dwells. In our hearts. His law is no longer on a set of tablets, on, 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 on two stone tablets. His law is now written on our hearts. So verse 21. Now, all, all that to say, let's now look at some of, uh, some of these. I really hope I have enough time. Um, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, so far so good. Nothing odd about this Old Testament reference. This is a reference to the sixth commandment in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not commit murder. Um, uh, King James Version uh, has a, a, a translation of that that at some point meant something. Thou shalt not kill. But, but language has somehow changed. Thou shalt not commit murder. I like that translation a little bit better because it begins to, to, to unpack what it means, how that relates to the heart. But the purposeful taking of life, in other words. So, so far, nothing odd about this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. By, by the way, do you all know what that judgment was in the Old Testament? Death. Yeah. So if, if God, way back in Genesis chapter 8, way back when He creates His covenant with mankind, He requires the blood of that who killed man. To both animal, by the way. So He, he, he tells animals. His, his, his commandment about the shedding of human blood requires human blood to be shed on, 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 as, as punishment. But look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the first thing I want to say about this is, some have suggested that Jesus is equating, making the same, that Murdering somebody is the same thing as being angry with somebody. And, and I, I don't see that in the text. There, there, I'll talk about some, some, some relationships to this, but being angry with my brother is not the same thing as me going out and murdering him. However, there are some deep similarities. And this is the point of Jesus mentioning them. Jesus teaching, if you murder, judgment will befall on you. But notice what he begins to do. Notice this escalation. Who, uh, that everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who insults his brother, so you go from an internal condition to now externalizing this condition to now whoever says, you fool. The actions might not be the same. 
insulting, calling someone a fool might not be the, or is not the same thing as murdering them, obviously. But the heart that motivates both actions is. What lies underneath the desire to hurt someone verbally, what that verbal attack represents is the same motivation behind the desire to kill someone. For Jesus to kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger is a symptom of the same spiritual sickness. Jesus is trying to get behind the commandment and to show God's intent. Now, look, I've read this several times. I remember reading this and I still couldn't get my, my head around, you know, okay, this just seems a little extreme, Jesus. You know, you know, killing somebody, murdering somebody, that's really... Like, can we all agree that that's really, really, really bad? Like, that's like the one, the top... Three sins that are, you know, uh, 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 pedophilia and, that, uh, and murder and rape. Those are like the top three, like there's nothing less evil than those things. Like that, that's it um, in terms of what we can physically do. So is, this whole thing about being angry with my brother, does that fit in the same category? There's just been a lot of, of, of tension in, in, in my mind throughout the years. But it's interesting when you listen to how the, 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 in the original language, the Greek, the words used to describe some, some of these actions, when we translate them to English, there's a little bit of, of a loss of, of kind of punch. Um, the word anger, um, there, there, there was, again, child-rearing age, so a, a, a lot of my analogies have to do with, with cartoon movies um, and stuff, but the, the, there was a movie that came out not too long ago uh, about the emotions of children. It was really beautiful and anger and, and fear and all this kind of stuff. And, and so, so anger has now been made a caricature that looks docile, that looks approachable, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But the word that is used in Greek, who is angry, is a pretty strong word. It is, is, is quite actually the most extreme version of anger. It's the seething, boiling desire to kill somebody. That phrase, you fool, that phrase, you fool, in the Greek, the Greek word that's used there is the word moros, M-O-R-O-S. It's transliterated to that. It's where the, we get the word moron. Okay, That doesn't sound that offensive. That doesn't sound so severe. However, this same word is the word that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses to speak about those who will not enter, guess what? The kingdom of heaven. So this is a strong word. So by calling someone you fool, a, a literal translation of that in our modern tongue would literally be, go to hell. And, mean it. Do you see? That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. That physically murdering somebody is not the same as articulating a verbal insult. But the heart condition underneath and behind the desire to take someone's life and the desire to not see someone go into the kingdom of God 
is a symptom of the same spiritual sickness. So this is what Jesus is pointing at too. So if that is the case, then we understand why verse 22, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. We, we, we can understand why, why it makes sense for Jesus to make that outlandish statement that if you call someone a moron, you fool, they're going to go to hell. Wait, what? what? No, no, no. Jesus is pointing to the inner anger of a person that could lead them to want to desire for them to spend an eternity under the wrath of God. So bottom line, the statement that Jesus is making is this. How can a member of the family of God who has been saved from the wrath of God act wrathfully, act in anger towards another whom God has forgiven? That's the bottom line statement that Jesus is trying to say. Because it's easy to observe that commandment. Thou shalt not murder. That's easy to do. It's very easy for me not to go outside and kill somebody. Right? I mean, it's easy. It is very hard for our hearts to be kept lacking a desire for someone to be harmed. It is very hard for our hearts to not become angry to the point of wanting harm to come on a person. And what Jesus is saying is, those two actions stem from the same heart. So, wow! Pretty, pretty severe. Jesus picks up on this in the Lord's Prayer. In the very next chapter, the Pastor Peter is going to walk us through. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Just this idea that one who has been forgiven by God cannot know unforgiveness. I'll say that again. If you have been forgiven by God, you cannot not know unforgiveness. It's, it's impossible. It's a contradiction of terms for someone who's been recipient of the forgiveness of God to, to forgive, for, for forgiveness not to come out of you freely is not... Is not, it's, 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 it's a tension there that should not be there. Let's continue. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled, that's the important word here, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Bottom line, Jesus uses two illustrations here to uh, bring about the, 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 the focus of reconciliation. Um, that first one in verse 23 Uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that might sound like, you know, you're coming to church and you're, oh, that person is angry with me. I'm going to go, it might sound that way, I'm going to go and I'm going to go pursue them and make sure that they're not angry with me. Quite the opposite. What that means, if you take that illustration with the second one, the point that Jesus is trying to make is if you're offering your sacrifice and someone has something against you, the language that's being used here is legal language. If someone has rightful, a rightful accusation against you, and therefore is angry at you because you have wronged them, then you are to go 
leave your altar before, uh, leave your gift before the altar and go. This would have been, by the way, this would have been pretty scandalous for them to hear. This teaching is taking place somewhere in Galilee, which is about 80 miles or so from Jerusalem, from the temple at this time. So, what Jesus is literally telling them, if you guys are, he, are, are at Jerusalem giving your offering to the, alt, in, in the altar, and there you remember that you have wronged somebody, leave your offering there, travel 80 miles back to Galilee, make this right, and then travel the 80 miles back towards Jerusalem. So, Jesus is serious about this. This isn't just kind of a pithy saying. This isn't just kind of, you know, like a, like a Chinese proverb, like those fortune cookies you open up and there's like a really clever wordplay. And there's, oh, that's nice. He's pretty serious about this. And the question is, why? Why would reconciliation be something that Jesus wants us to pursue? In prayer meeting, I read this text. Colossians 1, verse 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled both His body of flesh by His death. So Christ has reconciled us to Himself. Therefore, our example is to follow. Let's continue. Um... Verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is the second reference we have to hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Um, Truth be told, we could have taken each one of these categories and and had a lesson on each one of them. Um, But Pastor Peter just really wisely said, we want to get through the Gospel of Matthew uh, um, and and not let it be Exodus 2.0, you know, just kind of get through... Get through Matthew at some point. Um, so uh, there's 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 a whole lot I could say about this. Uh, just some some general thoughts. The lust that leads a man to adultery will also lead a man to hell. I'll say that again. The lust that leads a man and a woman to adultery is the same lust that will lead a man to hell. It's striking to me to read the descriptions of people that will not enter the kingdom of God. The list of kind of the the sins, idolaters, murderers, all these bad things, and adulterers and sexual immoral is always there. It's striking. 1 Corinthians, uh, Titus, uh, Book of Revelation. Um, Adultery is a pretty despicable sin. I know from experience with what happened with my parents. Adultery is... And this is why it's so severe. Adultery involves... Think about it. Involves the breaking of several commandments. Not just one. 
The first one that it breaks is the obvious one, you shall not commit adultery. Right? I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. But look at what it also breaks. You shall not steal. In the act of adultery, you are robbing someone else's family of their dignity, future, peace, and loved one. Another commandment that it breaks, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Self-explanatory. So we have three. Here's a fourth one that it breaks. Just talking about the Ten Commandments. Honor your father, your father and your mother. Now, how does adultery break this commandment? I go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I go back to God's um, design for, human, for humanity. And speaking to Adam and Eve, he says this, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That passage is striking for many reasons. One of the reasons that it's always struck me is what does Adam what do Adam and Eve know about mom and dad? They have no mom and dad. So when God is telling them a man shall leave his father and mother, are they what's a father? But what's a mother? Is that like one of those trees we eat or one of those animal things? They've no context to place marriage in, right? So who is that commandment for? It's for everyone. This is God's design. So God's design of marriage begins with this commitment moving from mother and father into husband and wife. Adultery breaks that commitment. Dishonors the origin of that commitment by going against the father and the mother that the man left to hold fast to his wife. So, this is pretty severe. I I realize our culture has made adultery. There are websites. There was a website that just was in the news a couple years ago. People's names coming out. And adultery is just like the, the, the thing of the day. But folks, this is a pretty serious deal. Pretty, pretty, pretty serious deal. Um, I've got to keep going because it's 928 already. And uh, I'm not even close to being done. But I have to say something about um, verse 28 and on. You have heard, uh, Verse 29, I'm sorry. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what do we do with that? If you struggle with pornography... Do you gouge your eyes out and fix the issue? That's what that seems to be saying, no? Well, the problem is, later on in Matthew 15, Jesus is going to make the statement, out of the heart of man, come. Lustful thoughts, sexual morality, etc., etc., etc. So Jesus, just ten chapters later, is going to tell us of the origin of evil. Back in Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, I've shared this with some of you, it's relevant to this. It's striking to me that God has wiped away humanity from the scene. The only people alive after the flood are who? Noah and his family. Why are they alive? Obviously because God declared it to be, but, but what about them? How is Noah described? 
righteous. So Noah, righteous Noah, and Noah's righteous family are alive. There's no other human being on the planet. No, there's no one else. Just Noah, the righteous Noah clan. When the flood subsides, Genesis chapter 8 tells us this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, I love this, in his heart. This passage reveals to us God's heart and it's about to reveal ours. I will never again curse the ground because of man. God's seemingly always desire to reconcile with wicked humanity. God's heart of forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. So many skeptics will point to the Old Testament God being this angry, spiteful, vengeful, wrathful, nasty, angry, bitter God. This is Genesis 8. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now listen to this part. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's shocking to me. The only people alive are Noah, righteous Noah, and Noah's family, righteous Noah's family. And God seems to say that man's heart, its desires are wickedness and evil from its youth. So, the point I'm trying to make, guys, is this issue with adultery... This issue with murder, this is an internal reality. What Christ is is preaching about here in this sermon is the purity of heart that He desires of all His people. This is why physically mutilating yourself will not work. If you tear your right eye, guess what? Your left one's still there. If you cut your right hand, guess what? Your left hand's still there. There was a man, a church father, by the name of Origen of Alexander, who did this. He castrated himself. And he regretted it. Yeah. For obvious reasons. But not the obvious reasons you think. He regretted it because he found out that the origin of his wickedness was his heart. So, I say all that to say, Jesus is not playing around. He's using hyperbole. He's using strong language to gain your attention and to confront you to the reality of how wicked adultery is and how equally we must strive to work against the wickedness of adultery by going through means of protecting us from lust. So, the sin of adultery, in this case, is equated with the sin of lust. And in the Old Testament, there was a punishment for adultery as well. What was that? Death. 1 Corinthians, Titus, Romans. Who will not enter the kingdom of God? Those who are what? Sexually immoral. Adulterers. So, how do we then gain purity of heart? What do we do? Blessed are the poor in spirit. We don't do anything. We trust and rely on Him who did everything for us. There's a song we sing called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Um, You will never sing that song again the same way 
um, verse, one of the verses has a, a, a line that says, He, uh, um, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. We, we can't beat the scribes. We can't beat the Pharisees. Folks, we, we can't. They were really good. I'm serious, y'all. They were good. Like, like their definition of work, you know, the Sabbath, okay, you're allowed to walk. They had formulas for this stuff, right? We don't. Yet, their righteousness was still not sufficient. Let's keep reading. I don't have a whole lot more time. Um, so, probably the wisest thing to do would be end here. And um, ask Pastor Peter to give me another crack at it next week and finish the rest. But the, the, the whole point of this teaching, the whole point of this section of the intent and the application of God's law rests in the reality that something must happen in our hearts. Something must be done for us that we may be allowed entry into the kingdom of God. Because by ourselves, we lack the power the necessity, the, the inclination, uh, even the knowledge sometimes of knowing what to do, of being righteous. Our very acts are insufficient. Not only are they insufficient, but they're counterproductive. We back, walk backwards when it comes to righteousness. We must then rely on Him who walked forwards, who walked a hill called Calvary and gave His life died, three days later rose again. And we stand with Him. We stand dressed. We have a robe of righteousness. When God sees us, He sees the finished and accomplished work of His Son. And on that basis, Romans 1, the righteous shall live by faith. The faith that we have in God grants us that righteousness. That righteousness is credited to us. We have a bank account, our spiritual bank account has a number that says Christ's righteousness. If you have faith in Christ, then that reward is yours. Um, let me pray for us. We're, we're a little over time. And uh, let me pray for us and um, pray that God would, would help us delight in what He has done as we sing this morning, folks. Listen, as we sing about what Christ has done, we, we, there's so many aspects to His ministry for us. There's, there's, so many, there's a substitutionary aspect in terms of, of he, died, he took our penalty. So our sexual immorality, our angry thoughts, that we're liable for judgment, He, he took that judgment on Him. So that's what he did. He, he, took that, he took that on Him. So there's that component to the cross, but there's also another component to the cross. The law still needs to be observed. The law, the kingdom of God, the laws that God has instituted still must be obeyed perfectly. And He obeyed them perfectly. He fulfilled them perfectly. So now we stand because of the way He made perfectly righteous. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for Your truth. Thank you, Father, for the new heart that you have given us through your Holy Spirit. 
We confess, Father, that our heart is wicked at times. <laughs> it's always wicked, not at times. What am I saying? Father, we confess that our thoughts uh, are just... Every aspect of our being falls short of your glory. God, so we fall on our face. We come before you desperately clinging to what Christ has done. Thanking you for the fulfillment, for the comprehensive nature of his sacrifice. It is inexhaustible. It is comprehensive. It's not lacking. There needs nothing to be added to. Lord, and all of that is given to us through grace by Christ. Bless us this day, O Lord. I pray that your Spirit, Father, would urge us, would compel us, would lead us to worship as we gather with the rest of our family, Father. That your Word, as it's proclaimed, Father, would, would again, be written in our hearts. Father, help us obey with more than our feet and our hands. Help us not just do things, Father, but desire to do things. Help the cleanness and the purity of, a, of our hearts because of, of, of the regeneration of the washing that Christ has done. Help that purity manifest itself in good works, Father. And let us never confuse good works and, 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 and the doing of righteousness as something that pleases you. You are fully pleased because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Guard us, guide us, lead us, Father. Be with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.